This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. What a joy to sing of the truths of God's Word together this Lord's Day. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Hear now the Word of the living God. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. This is the word of the living Christ, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, living Lord, we pray that by your mercy and grace, through your spirit, the voice of Christ would be made known to the people of Christ. Give us aid in both the preaching and the hearing of the word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter, as he often does in this wonderful letter of Holy Scripture, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quotes from the Old Testament. If you've been journeying with us as we've walked through the book of 1 Peter, you will note again that multiple times Peter quotes from the Old Testament, and as he does so, it's often a new section. Here, in the midst of this discussion of submission to elders and to one another, He quotes from the Old Testament, and the theme is humility. God resists the proud. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the linchpin of this section of Scripture, the word humility. That's what we are going to speak on this day. That's what we're going to consider this day, humility as people of Christ. But what is humility? Proverbs 22 verse 4 says essentially that life comes from the fear of the Lord and from humility. Humility could be defined in the following ways, not being arrogant, willingness to be lowly, Resting on God rather than self and self-accomplishments. Not viewing self as lifted up. A true biblical humility is where one has a right perspective of who is lifted up. Only the living Christ. Pride says, I'm something. Humility says, he is something. This is the linchpin of this section. It will require us to review last week, verse 5. 
But humility, I would argue, is found in at least three ways in this section. What does humility look like? How is it that the Holy Spirit, through Peter's pen, wants us to understand humility? Well, let me give you three themes and then we'll discuss them together. Humility, number one, embraces authority. Humility embraces authority. Number two, as we'll see, humility rejects autonomy. Boys and girls, autonomy means being by yourself, thinking that you have all that you need, being off and alone. Humility rejects that by and large in the Christian life. But thirdly, humility relinquishes anxiety. We aren't there yet. Please don't misunderstand those three words. Humility relinquishes anxiety. It's very different from saying humility will never have anxiety. Let's look at these three components of what humility looks like. Some of this first point will be a review for us from last week. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, you will recall that the elders are exhorted to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, or perhaps it could be translated, taking oversight, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, boys and girls, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And then in verse 5, the people of Christ are given a commission Or they're asked to take on a commitment, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, we saw this last week. That word submit could be translated defer. Defer to the authority of, come underneath. But who are these humble Christians to submit to? Well, the elders, the pastors, the ministers that Christ through the work of the congregation, has set apart in their midst. We saw last week that this has to be the case because of the context of verses 1 through 4. This isn't telling younger people to submit to senior citizens, although we could use a little bit more of a dose of that in our day. No, rather, this is the church of Christ submitting to the elders, the pastors. Notice Again, Peter uses the word likewise in verse 5, connecting this verse with what's come before. The Greek word hasn't changed for elder. And even though it says younger people, yes, of course, this could be telling just the young folks in the congregation. It seems by all account to be a general term for those who are under the authority of those who, by God's grace, have walked For years in the faith, humility embraces authority. Here's how we get to that, though. Notice what Peter says. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. The clothing for submitting to authority is humility. Humility says Christ knows what is best. 
Humility says there are a variety of authorities which Christ has in his sovereign care placed over me. And insofar as they are not unbiblical or not sinful or calling me to sin, I should defer. I should come underneath them. It doesn't mean that they're always right. It doesn't mean that they are any better than me. But that there is a sense in which this is Christ's way. Said differently, Peter has spoken to a variety of authorities, hasn't he? The civil magistrate, the marriage between a husband and a wife, employer and employee, now elders or pastors, it's the same word, same office, elders, pastors to people. When we refuse to submit to authority that is not being unbiblical and not calling us to sin, the heart level issue is the absence of humility, which the scripture calls pride. We saw last week that Hebrews thirteen seventeen mirrors this and even strengthens it. It doesn't even use the word younger people. It just tells all Christians to submit to obey the elders that God has placed over them. Boys and girls, what are elders? Well, we learn about elders in a variety of places. A couple of different words are used for elders, elders, pastors, overseers. A word that we don't often use here because it can get a little confusing, but it means the same thing, bishop. We see that they are to be qualified in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. We won't turn there, but there is a list of qualifications. What's interesting in those qualifications is that really all of those qualifications except for one, being able to teach, is a qualification that that all men should be pursuing. Not that all men should be pursuing eldership, but that all men should be pursuing this kind of lifestyle, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. We see that Deacons are set forth in Acts chapter 6 so that the apostles and then later the elders can focus on the ministry of prayer and the word. In Ephesians 4 verse 11, we see that elders or pastors are given to the church to do the ministry. By God's grace, we'll talk about that this evening. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says that elders are to lead in preaching the word. And Hebrews 13, verse 7, calls us to respect elders as those who rule over you. Part of the reason for elders to meet qualifications, such as those in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, is that they need to be Christ-sent men who seek by His grace in humility to lead Those, as Peter says, who have been entrusted to them. But humility in our context is the clothing of the congregation. It's the clothing of the Christian who says, King Jesus has said to me that by his grace and for his glory, I should submit to my elders. He's told me that to do this, I'm going to need to be humble. This is a lifelong process, but humility embraces authority. Where might there be, friend, any hint of pride in your own heart as it relates to any of the authority figures that God has placed over you? But particularly in this instance, those of church authority. 
This could look like a variety of things. I refuse to submit to the elders of my own church. I refuse to submit to the elders of any church and thus not join one. I refuse to go to the church where are the elders that I'm supposed to be submitted to and rather go to a lot of other churches and never really come under the shepherding care of any elders. It could look a little bit like this. The elder from the church all the way on the other cross of the the, the, the country says it this way. I know the local church elder who knows me and my family is in my life, but I really want to learn more from the elder on the other side of the world than the one that God has placed in my life. On and on it goes. Again, if any of this comes from a heart of pride, it really becomes a fifth commandment issue, doesn't it? Be clothed with humility. And in a sense, in order to defer to fallible men that need the blood of Christ to wash away their sins, we're going to have to be humble. Some of you in this room know far more than I will ever know. Some of you in this room have skills that I will never meet. Some of you in this room perhaps have a Walk with Christ that in some ways is further along in the path than the elders of this church. And yet, you seek to be clothed with humility to follow the authority that Christ has put over you. Humility embraces authority. Likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. But then notice what he says next. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Now this is interesting. We saw this verse last week, but we didn't unpack it. Here in this verse, I think we see a second reality of humility, and that is that humility rejects autonomy. What is it that Peter says? All of you be submissive to one another. Now we are pictured not only as deferring and submitting ourselves to the elders that Christ has placed over us insofar as they're not unbiblical and they're not leading into sin, but now we're, we're, we're told to submit to one another, to defer to one another. What might that look like? Well, it's really a summary, isn't it, of what much of the New Testament tells us to be like towards each other. It might seem clunky, it might seem strange, but every time our church has a congregational meeting, we read a document together. It's really a string of Bible verses. It's our church covenant. Every member is asked to read that and, and note anywhere that they disagree. But the church covenant talks about, from a variety of scriptures, what our life is to be like toward one another. Rejoicing in each other's joys. Sorrowing with each other in each other's sorrows. Taking care to provide watch care over those entrusted to us. Working together to make sure that the gospel is preeminent in this place. Helping the weak and the poor. These are the kinds of things that we read every quarter together. You know, in one way, you could summarize that entire document by quoting 1 Peter 5, verse 5. We're submitting to one another. We're saying, I I need you, and, and you need me. We're not alone. 
John Calvin writes these words in the 1500s, no member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own necessities, end quote. Being clothed with humility means that I'm going to be willing to submit to others in this body, that you're going to be willing to submit to others in this body, not so much in the authority structure, but in that I see that there are things that I'm going to need you for, and there are things that you're going to need me for, and we're going to defer to one another. We're going to act in such a way that there's not offense, and if there is offense, we seek to work that out. Matthew Henry in his commentary, I think, provides a very helpful way of describing this paragraph. A Puritan of the 1600s commenting on this passage says these words, As to one another, the rule is that they should all be subject one to another, so far as to receive the reproofs and counsels one of another, and be ready to bear one another's burdens, and perform all the offices of friendship and charity one to another, And particular persons should submit to the directions of the whole society. Ephesians 5.21, James 5.16. These duties of submission to superiors in age or office and subjection to one another being contrary to the proud nature and selfish interests of men, he advises them to be clothed with humility. End quote. For a believer who's come to see that you don't have what it takes to save yourself. Your very salvation is a proclamation that you have to have the work of another. The living Christ then saves you and washes you in his blood. And what does he do? He places you in a little society called the church that he tenderly nourishes down through the ages. And one of the ways that he nourishes you is through the communion of the saints. We're submissive to one another. We hear one another's counsels. We think of the Proverbs that tell us that there's wisdom in the counsel of others. We sometimes confess sins to one another. We ask one another to pray for us. We ask for wisdom of those who are older and wiser in the faith or in age. We listen when people lovingly try to warn us. We say, it's not just my needs, but your needs that also matter. Being clothed with humility means that every day there is a spiritual family that I have a keen interest in seeing excel for the glory of Christ. Humility rejects autonomy. Now, this is not to say that you lose your identity. We live in a world today that talks about identity a lot, don't we? Every, everyone has a, an identity found in something other than Christ. No, you are your own person. You are an individual soul for whom Christ died if you're a Christian. But you reject the idea that you are alone in the world and that you need no one else and that you need not the words of others in your life. Humility embraces authority, and humility rejects autonomy. Peter can tell us to be clothed with humility. I don't know if you remember Paul's words from Acts chapter 20, 
We looked at this last Lord's Day evening. He was speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church, and he's asking them to follow his example. And do you know what he says? In Acts chapter 20, verse 19, he says that his journey in the faith has been full of tears and trials. And then he says that he has undertaken this with humility. Now, by no means is the Apostle Paul our idol. But if this man can say, I have sought to live humbly as an apostle of Jesus Christ, who are we to think that we need not live humble lives among one another? Humility rejects autonomy. Brothers and sisters, sometimes this humility comes not only with what we do, but with what we say. There is really a pandemic in churches all across the West today. And that pandemic, among other things, is the issue of complaining about one's church. Oh, how it should sadden us, not when true sins are brought to light for the glory of Christ, not when error is corrected for the glory of Christ, But when it seems like in an autonomous spirit, members of the body of Christ are complaining pridefully, it seems, about their own church. I praise God that it doesn't seem like, at least they don't reach my ears, there are very many complaints in this body. But let us be on guard. Think about the goodness and the gift of Christ that we have here in this place. We gather morning and evening. Various men preach the word of Christ. People are known. When they leave us, it hurts because we know that they're leaving us. You have men that are a phone call away who will be there if you call. If you are desiring more fellowship, there are more opportunities in this body in a week than you can even take advantage of. It would simply be a sign of pride to say, I don't really like my church. It would be clothing oneself with humility to say, look at the blessing of God. We're not perfect. I guess if I had to do it all by myself, I might do a few things differently. But look at what he's done in our midst. It's a clothing with humility. And again, humility embraces the authority that God has put over us and it rejects autonomy. But thirdly, notice what Peter says. Humility relinquishes anxiety. I want you to see how these verses work together. Verse 5, younger people or church submit to the elders and then he overflows with, yes, all of you submit to one another and be clothed with humility for, and then he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, therefore. So humility is sandwiched in these three verses. In our approach to authority, our approach to one another, and in what he says next. Therefore, humble yourselves. Now, boys and girls, that word therefore is important. He's just quoted from the Old Testament and said, God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, or 
This is the reason why we should, what does he say? Humble ourselves. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. The third kind of humble action that we see is that humility relinquishes. It gives over, it lets go of anxiety. What does this mean? Well, I want you to notice how this works. Most English translations that I'm aware of translate it this way. Humble yourselves, that's the command. How are we to humble ourselves? Those of you that love grammar, look at verse 7. It's a participle. It's a a verb thing ending in an I-N-G a lot of times that tells us how to do the bigger verb thing. Humble yourselves by casting all your care upon him. Do you know that when you are anxious and worried and you cry out to the living God, that is not a failure. That's a humble act of faith. We are to humble ourselves by casting all our care upon him. Let's talk about this for just a few moments. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God is a way of saying that God is all-powerful. Boys and girls, some of you have learned the word omnipotent. God and God alone is all-powerful. But what about this usage of the word mighty hand? Remember, we've learned, haven't we, boys and girls, God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like men. God doesn't have physical hands way out in the outer space. No, this is where one of the writers of the Bible is using kind of human language to help us understand a God who we will never fully understand. The mighty hand. You ever been working with your dad or grandfather, grandmother, or mother, and they've just been able to do something because their hands are bigger and stronger than yours? This is the Scripture's way of saying, humble yourselves under the one who is all-powerful. And this happens everywhere. Turn over to Exodus chapter 32 for just a moment. Peter is borrowing the language of the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 32 Exodus chapter 32 and verse 11. Right in the midst of the golden calf situation, we read these words, Exodus 32, 11. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with what? A mighty hand. We see that in Deuteronomy 3, verse 24, and other places. Peter's just borrowing on previous scripture to say, humble yourselves under the God who can work wonders. Humble yourselves under the only one who is all-powerful. And why is humility our posture? Because we actually have to admit to ourselves and to the world that we are not all-powerful. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Now the commentators discuss this. Does this mean that if you humble yourselves, eventually the world will see and you'll get rewarded? Or is Peter doing what he often has done in these five chapters? He's talking about the day of Christ's return, the day of exaltation. I think it could be a little bit of both. 
Yes, there could be times in this life where the Lord rewards your humility and, as it were, underneath His mighty hand exalts you. But certainly in the context of this book, Peter has in view the day that is coming when all will see and it will all be clear. Peter talks about that day over and over and over. He's just spoken of it, didn't he? In verse 4, when he reminded the elders, hey, the chief shepherd... He's going to appear soon. He's going to appear, so if the work is difficult and challenging and you are under the persecution of men and women, your shepherd is coming. Or if you're lording over the flock, if you're not leading faithfully as an elder, the chief shepherd is appearing. He's not going to take away a true blood-bought salvation. But you'll have to give an account when he comes. The return of Christ is everywhere in 1 Peter. So this could be what he's speaking of. Humble yourselves now under the mighty hand of God. And in due time, he will exalt you. But how are we to humble ourselves? How are we to take a lowly view? How are are we to not be arrogant? Look at verse 7. Casting all your care upon him. That's a good translation. There should be an I-N-G at the end of that word. Casting all your care describes how to humble yourself. When we cast our cares and anxiety onto the Lord, it reveals that we do not believe ourselves to be God. Now, before we go any further, I have to make this note. I just just want you to see something that maybe you've seen before, maybe you've thought about before, but you need to understand it before we... Close by digging a little further in what it means to cast our anxieties on the Lord. Notice that the text assumes that we will have cares and anxieties to cast upon the Lord. Peter could have written, if you are a godly Christian, you won't have anxieties and cares. Because that word cares means things like, Lord, I need food. Lord, I'm, I'm bringing this to you in my concern, but it also means anxieties, worries, concerns. The text is not arguing that if you pray just right, you won't have anxiety, you won't have any cares. This is not a prosperity gospel text. Rather, in varying degrees, sometimes influenced by spiritual issues, relational issues, even our own physical body issues, we will have anxieties. Sometimes they'll go away, and the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds, and that anxiety slips away. For others of us, it is a lifelong journey. Whether their anxieties are great or whether they're small, in humility, we're simply told to, to cast them, to relinquish them to the Lord. And notice the reason. I, one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. I don't know if it's my favorite of all time, but it's close. Casting all your cares. Some translations will render it casting all your worries or anxieties. Casting all your care upon Him. Why? Why would I ever think that God is concerned about what makes me anxious. Why would I ever think that I can go to God in the midst of my deepest worries? For, or because, or since, He 
cares for you. Those four words, he cares for you, ought to put us on our face the entire week. How is it that the sovereign God of the universe, the one with the mighty hand, would take notice of me and my small worries? They're not small to me, but they're small to him. Because he cares for us. Remember what Paul says, and he breaks forth and prays for the gospel in Romans chapter 8. He says that God is what? For us. Certainly, some of our anxieties in this life will be sinful. But it is actually possible to have cares and be concerned about something that is true and coming and do it without sin. You may say, I've always thought that any time we're anxious, it's always sinful. Well, come with me, friend, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Where the living Christ sinlessly poured out his concern to the Father. If there be any other way, remove this cup from me. He is, in many translations, and I think it ought to be there, sweating great drops of blood as he's praying this. He has concern, and sinlessly, what does he do? 1 Peter 5, verse 7. He lays it before the Lord. Now, we are sinners. And much of our anxiety is often tainted with sins. But we need to remember that we live in a world that is broken, that our bodies have experienced the results, the curse. And so some of us just have anxieties. Maybe it's our thoughts, our relationships, the way that our bodies are working. Please, whatever you think on this week, friend, do not hear 1 Peter 5, 7 saying to you, if you had more faith, you would not be anxious. That may be true. But 1 Peter 5, 7 is instructing you in this. When you are anxious, as you are worried, the humble thing to do is to go to the king. Relinquish them every day. I don't know if you've ever been anxious. You've ever walked through a season of anxiety. It's very difficult to relinquish anxiety. By its very nature, you want to hold on to it. Sometimes you can't help it. It's just a part of your physical makeup in a fallen world. You, you mean in those cases, every day, I, I, I should, yes, borrowing on the aids, perhaps of doctors and others, I should be pouring that out to the Lord? Yes. Why? Because he cares for you. Notice how he tells us that he cares for us in the midst of our concerns and worries. You see, humility means that I realize that I am not God. And many, I'm speaking for me, many of my own anxieties, perhaps yours, are when I think that I am God with a little g. Oh, I should be able to control this. And I spend my day or my week or my hours trying to figure out how to control something that is not mine to control. You ever been there? 
That's sinful anxiety. That's a pride. It's not being clothed with humility. But there may be longer seasons where remembering that he cares for me in the midst of the deepest storm, I say them over and over and over to him. Humility relinquishes anxiety. Now, before we finish, brothers and sisters, lean on that phrase, for he cares for you. For whom does he care? Well, he cares for Christians. In one sense, God cares for all creation, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. But here, the the chief creature that is expressed as having God's care, in fact, all throughout the Bible, are those for whom Christ died, his people, his sheep, his saints from the old covenant and the new covenant times alike. He cares for us. Are you one of his people? The scripture is very clear on who Christ's people are and who they aren't. They're called believers or those who are united to Christ. I know we use the word Christian a lot, but the word Christian isn't used as much in the Bible. Please feel free to use the word. It's there. But more often than not, we're either called believers or those united with Christ. Christ has come. He's lived a perfect life, the only one to do it. He died a death on the cross to pay the penalty for everyone who ever trusts in him. God poured out the punishment for sins on Christ. Christ was raised. He took those sins to the grave. Not one lick of punishment is left ungiven. And the message of history is that Christ stands at the crossroads of it all. And by his Spirit calls one and calls all to come to him. To trust him by faith. To lean not on ourselves but to rest on him, to receive him, to believe not only the facts about him, but to rest on him, to lean on him as the law keeper, to lean on him as the sacrifice. Every time we see a sin in our lives, we say, Christ, the perfect lamb of God, bled for me in this. By faith, we receive him. We're united to him such that his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And that makes us a believer. Is that you? Because you know what the core of not receiving Christ really is? Pride. Christians aren't humble people by nature at least not initially. The Spirit of Christ has awakened us to see our need and quickly forged a kind of humility in us that says, I cannot stay away from Christ. If I stay away any longer, I will perish. And then he grows us, some more quickly than others, in a humility which becomes part of our new nature. He cares for every one of his sheep, Are you one of his sheep? 
We've talked some today, beloved, about humility, how it embraces authority, how it rejects the idea that we are autonomous, and how when we have cares and anxieties, we relinquish those. We give those over repeatedly even to the Lord because we believe he cares for us. Let's pray. Living God, as we wrestle with authority, help us. As we wrestle with any kind of sinful and prideful autonomy, help us. As we wrestle with anxiety and worry, help us. May we remember in it all the precious words of this passage that you care for us. And you've told us that you care for us in the midst of a passage where we're invited to bring to you our deepest anxieties and cares and concerns. We pray as well today for those in this room who've not embraced Christ. Oh, may they see that the precious Savior who tends his sheep has not closed yet the door of the sheep pen, but will receive any and all who come to him. We pray that you would be giving faith to the lost this day. All these things we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church and is calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.